chapter number 13. Luke chapter 13, over the past few Sunday mornings, we have been preaching a little short series we have called Transcendental Truths. And uh, the first week we talked about a transcendental truth concerning tribute. Tribute is money that you pay to somebody that you owe your life to. And somebody that has the power of life and death over you. And somebody that has the authority over you. They asked the Lord, said, should we pay tribute or shouldn't we? And he said, hand me a penny. He's talking about a Roman coin. And they handed him one of those denarius and he said, whose image is on this? They said, Caesar's. He said, well, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And he said, but render unto God that which is God's. What did he mean? Well, we're made in the image of God. Amen. And there's more than one kind of tribute that we ought to be paying. Then we talked about a, a, a transcendental truth about authority and what heavenly authority is and how we subject ourselves unto heavenly authority. And last week, uh, by the Lord's help, we talked about a transcendental truth about relationships. Who are my brethren? Who is my sister? Who is my mother? We talked about how there are deeper things that connect folks than just physical flesh and blood or even friendships or uh, common affections. Uh, but there are spiritual roots that tie us together as the children of God. Uh, by the Lord's help this morning, I want us to look in Luke chapter number 13 at another of these transcendental truths. We'll begin reading in verse number 1, Luke chapter 13, verse number 1. The Word of God says that there were present at that season some that told Him, that told Jesus of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? He answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that... Thou shalt cut it down. Let's pray together. Lord, we love You and thank You for this time You've given us. I pray that You'd take Your holy, inspired Word, preserved in inerrancy, and that You'd wield it this morning. Lord, we need to hear from You. We want to, I believe, and I trust. But Lord, more than want to, we need to. We need Your Word. We need Your power. We need Your authority and Your wisdom in our lives. And I pray that, Lord, we'd receive it. I know it is not dependent upon whether you have a supply, but it's dependent upon whether we're submitted. So help us, Father, to have our hearts open to the truth of the Word of God. Uh, Lord, may heaven sit down and meet with us this morning, and may serious business be done for the kingdom of Christ. We'll be sure to give you glory for it. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. As we have said throughout this series, we're defining a transcendental truth. Uh, by three things. Before I get to that, let me give you a very quick definition of the word transcendental. Most of you probably already uh, could define it for me, but uh, the word transcendental means something that goes above, something that goes beyond. It's something that transcends one plane to another plane. And 
when we look at these truths that the Lord gives, we find as their primary characteristic, most of the time folks would ask Him a question. And He would give them an answer. And in that answer, He very often would answer their question. But He would go beyond. He would transcend the question that they asked, and He would deal with a deeper thing. And so we have described it by these three characteristics. And I won't say they, they always abide by these, but most of the time you get two, if not all three, and a lot of times you get all three. It appears that there are three things that, that we find in these passages. A transcendental truth was given, number one, to elevate the conversation. To talk about something more than what they asked about. Not merely to sound smart or, or academic or intelligent, but to get to the very heart of the question that they asked. Have you ever had someone ask you a question and you knew they were asking something other than the question they asked? They were asking around their question or they were asking at their question or they were asking the question the best they knew how, but maybe they didn't have a grasp on what was the the deeper thing. And so the Lord would, would elevate the conversation. Number two, He would expound a deep truth. Now these things go hand in hand. He talks about something bigger than what they asked about. And He reveals something deeper than what they were talking about. And that's what makes it to me so fascinating, is to realize that the Lord gets to the very heart. It's like He pushes away all of the externalities and gets to the heart of what's really being asked in these passages. And then a third thing that more often than not He did was He would use this to expose His enemies. Very often the questions they were asking were wrong, not because they were unintelligent, not because they were uninformed, uh, but because they were they were uh, unsincere or insincere. It was because they they really were trying to trip him up, and and that's why. And let me tell you something: as long as your questions are motivated uh, by an agenda, you'll never get to the real truth of the matter. A lot of people that study the Bible to uh, try to disprove the Bible, and they believe that they do that. Now, how is it that they could believe that they could find errors in the Bible and yet God's people have been combing through it far more diligently than any scholar ever could uh, for their entirety of their lives and find no errors? Well, the reason is because the Bible is a book of faith and if you want to conform God to your sense of logic, uh, sooner or later He's going to disagree with your system of logic. That doesn't mean He's wrong. It doesn't mean that there's an error. It doesn't mean it's illogical, but it means that there's a higher logic, a heavenly logic. A heavenly truth. And so, he would often expose his enemies. And he's done this in all of the, uh, all of the passages that we've looked to heretofore. And we find it to be the same in the passage here before us this morning. The Bible says in verse 1, there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, nowhere do they suggest, or at least it's not revealed in the text to us, Nowhere do they suggest that this was an indictment upon these people. But it's apparent by the Lord's answer that that's what they believed. They believed that this was an indictment on these individuals. There are two events that are brought up in this passage. The first is brought up by the people and the second is brought up by the Lord. The first was an instance where a group of of rebels, a group of insurrectionists, led by a fellow named Judas that's described in the book of Acts, not Judas the disciple, but another individual, and this man had, had stirred up uh, these people uh, to uh, rebel against the Roman government. In fact, probably it was that very instance that had prompted the question that they asked the Lord concerning tribute. Because this Judas fella had told his followers that they were not to pay tribute to the Roman government. And you say, well, preacher, what happened to him? Well, just imagine what happened to him. Uh, we're coming up on April 15th. You just try her out. Amen? 
And you'll find out what will happen. A lot of things government don't take serious, but they take, they take tax money serious. Amen? And the Romans were no different. And so Pilate fell upon these people as they were in the temple in Jerusalem. They were giving sacrifices. And Pilate's uh, soldiers fell upon them and slew them and mingled their blood with those sacrifices that they were giving. And so this was a loaded inquiry. They were essentially saying, what do you think about them people? Lord, were, were they righteous and martyrs? Or were they rebels and they were uh, injustice killed and destroyed and laid low? Christ replies back to them. He says, suppose ye, verse 2, that these, sin- these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He then offers an example himself. Verse 4, he says, Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem. So we're starting to get somewhat of an idea of what's taking place here. These two events are at the center of the discussion. And they represent two very, very important things. They represent the idea of judgment. That's really what they're asking here. These events that happened to them, were those tragedies or was that judgment? And Christ will go on, I believe, to endorse the idea that they were judgment. But these two things represent two different kinds of judgment that you can see happen in people's lives. The first is judgment by human intervention. Uh, Pilate slew those individuals. Now, we do know, of course, the Bible tells in the book of Romans that uh, the uh, officials that are placed over us are the ministers of God. They do not bear the sword in vain. And certainly the Jewish people would have had somewhat of a concept of that. And that's really why they asked, was God using Pilate as an instrument of judgment in these people's lives? Christ, in the example He gives, is a little different and fascinatingly so because He describes an event that could not be by human hands. He describes uh, this tower in Siloam following because of a la- uh, uh, falling because of a lack of architectural integrity upon these 18 people. So in His example, He speaks of divine intervention. Now let me go ahead and say, before I even get into the preaching of it this morning, there is a greater context here. Uh, the Lord Jesus is talking to these Jews and these events that had taken place, they foreshadowed a coming judgment that would come upon the nation of Israel. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus, he would one day be the emperor. At that time, he was just a, the general over the Roman army. He marched his troops into Jerusalem. They sacked the city. They burnt the temple town. And these events that he's speaking about foreshadow those things. The first event uh, foreshadows the scene of coming judgment. Uh, Pilate, he mingled those uh, their blood with sacrifices. They were in the temple when that took place. You remember the Lord Jesus walked in amongst the temple and looked at His disciples and He said, There shall not be one stone of this building that shall not be cast down and thrown down. He was uh, predicting and prophesying, foreshadowing the destruction of the temple. At this time it would have been unthinkable. But He is reminding them there's coming a day when even the temple will be overthrown. And then I think that second event reminds us it foreshadows the source of coming judgment. Couldn't nobody have pushed that tower over but God. And so it was a picture of divine judgment. And of course, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was divinely appointed. It was divinely ordained. That was the judgment of God. That's the very reason He tells the parable. And He says, "Ye shall all likewise perish. Uh, you think this has come upon them because they're great sinners, uh, but there's coming a day the whole nation's going to be overthrown this way for rejecting their Messiah if you don't repent and receive Me. You might say, well, preacher, what does all that have to do with anything? I want to get to the heart of what they were really saying here. Push aside all of the 
context, and don't disregard it, but, but for a moment, set it to the side, all the context about, about the Romans and about the temple and about Israel and about 70 A.D. and the coming... Ju- and get to the heart of what they were really saying. When they brought these people up, they were implying that these tragedies that had happened in their life were the judgment of God. And they were saying that this tragedy in their lives was an indicator of about three things. One, uh, they were implying that these calamities were indicators of the presence of sin. The Lord Jesus gets to the heart of this. He said, do you think these men were sinners above all in Jerusalem? He knew their hearts. He knew what they were thinking. They were thinking these men are sinners. That's why it happened to them. Let me tell you something, and I'm ashamed to say it, but it's crossed my mind before when I've seen the judgment of God in people's lives. And it's probably crossed your mind before, if you were to be honest with yourself. You see calamities happen. You may not say it in an unkind way, but you probably thought, well, I wonder what they did. I wonder what they did. (laughs) They might look at the way you look and say, I wonder what he did. Amen? That's what they do to me. They, uh, They thought it was an indicator of the presence of sin. They said, man, these people must be sinners. Let me say number two, I think they saw it as an indicator of the proportion of sin. Christ, he, he speaks their very heart. He says, suppose ye, verse number 2, He says, suppose ye uh, the, that these were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things. Right. Verse 4, He says, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem. In other words, He's saying, you've seen the judgment of God in their life. You think that means they must be sinners and you think that must mean that they are severe sinners. They must be really, really bad. Because of the third thing they thought it indicated. Listen carefully now. We'll preach here in a second. They thought it was an indicator of the presence of sin in the lives of others. They thought it was an indicator of the proportion of sin in the lives of others. And here's the other side of the coin. Because they thought it was an indication of their purity from sin. Here Christ gets really to the heart of it. He said, the reason you think that about them is because you believe yourself to be innocent from sin. You see, if they're sitting there saying, well, this judgment has happened to these people because they are such grave, dark sinners, because they're wicked, wicked men. The other side of that coin is, I must be okay. Because I ain't never had a tower fall on me. I must be okay because I have never experienced this thing. The Lord Jesus replies very simply, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, you shall all likewise What is He telling us? If the Lord will help us, I want to take a few moments and talk to you about a transcendental truth about judgment. The judgment of God. I believe the judgment of God is a real thing. I believe God judges people. Of course, and we talked about it in Sunday school, incidentally this morning, or maybe providentially, we talked about the judgment of God. We talked about the judgment seat of Christ that the saved will partake in. We talked about the judgment of the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom that the the unsaved, that the lost will partake in. We even talked about the judgment of nations in Matthew 25 that's described when God separates, Christ separates the sheep nations and the goat nations. I believe the judgment of God is a real thing. But not merely judgment in the sense of an event, broad, encompassing many people, but I think even God judges people in their own lives. I, I, I would not dare, I would not dare intrude in upon such a holy topic as to speculate. But I will merely say there's been people in my life and there's probably been people in your life that you've seen things happen to them. And if you were to be honest, you believe that was the judgment of God. I certainly believe God chastens His children. I certainly believe God judges the unrighteous. I certainly believe God is actively involved in the lives of His creation. And I believe there are times when God must exert 
His holy nature through means of wrath. And that is really what they were asking about. What is the judgment of God a commentary upon? It's interesting because Christ never once denies that this was the judgment of God. He never says these men were not sinners. He just says, if you think they were worse sinners than you, you've got another thing coming. That's right. He never absolves them or acquits them. He, he, he never says they're okay or they're alright. He never says you've got it misunderstood. This wasn't the judgment of God. No, he, he, he owns the fact that this was the judgment of God. But he says the problem is your commentary or your idea of the judgment of God, what you're drawing and learning from it is the wrong thing. And so he reveals to them how the child of God is to view the judgment of God in the lives of another person. And I've got three things I want to say about it this morning. Let me say, number one, he reveals that God's judgment is a witness. God's judgment is a witness. So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, a witness is somebody that bears testimony to a truth. That's why you call them to a trial. is So they'll tell you what they saw or what they heard or what they know. Their purpose is to be there to bear testimony or to bear witness of a certain truth. And Christ reveals that indeed the judgment of God does reveal some things, but they've got misunderstood what exactly it reveals. I jotted down this statement. This may say it better than I can say it. They view judgment, the judgment of God, as a commentary on the recipient's character. They said, these people must be great sinners because God judged them. Let me say this, indeed, sometimes it is. And certainly, let me say this, God never judges anybody unrighteously. Never once. Shall the judge of all the earth, Abraham said, shall he not do right? God has never misjudged anyone. I've misjudged people all the time. I was telling a preacher friend of mine yesterday, we was talking, I can't remember what we was talking about, but I made the statement to him, or maybe it was Friday night, I, I said, you know, a lot of times if I meet somebody and like them right away, I can be wrong about that. I've liked lots of people and wound up being wrong. You, you know what I mean? You ever been there? But I said, most of the time if I meet someone and dislike them right away, I'm usually pretty right about that. <laughs> Maybe that's confirmation bias on my part. But the fact of the matter is, sometimes we misjudge people. We misassess a situation. But Christ never does. God never does. He always judges correctly and rightly. And so it is not completely inappropriate to view the judgment of God as a commentary on someone's character. Certainly, certainly, there are times God must judge people. But can I just point you to a little Old Testament book you may have heard of called the book of Job? You know why his friends got it wrong? for the same reason these people got it wrong. They viewed judgment, calamity, tragedy as a commentary on Job's character. But you know what the judgment of God is first primarily a commentary? It is not primarily a commentary on a person's character. Judgment is primarily, it is firstly a commentary on God's holiness and secondly on man's wickedness. In other words, these people looked and they said, well man, this judgment fell. These must have been great sinners. But Christ says, man, you're getting it wrong. When you see the judgment of God in people's lives, that shouldn't, your first thought should not be, what have they done wrong? Your first thought should be, man, what a holy God we have. That He cannot abide sin. It really declared basically, I think, two things. One, it was a commentary, it was a witness of the righteousness of God. Christ never absolves these people. He never excuses them. He never says they were not wrong. And He never once indicts God for these things. He never says Pilate was not an instrument of God's judgment. He never says the tower in Siloam was not an instrument of God's judgment. All He merely says is, hey, God's a righteous God. You'll get judged too if you don't repent. 
So it reveals to us that we have a righteous God. Now what we mean by righteous, what we mean by holy is this, that God's very character and person sets the standard for rightness. For right, that's what righteousness is. Righteousness is the active behavior uh, correlating to and harmonizing with rightness. Uh, it's a person doing what is right as opposed to what is wrong. Now here's the question, who sets that standard? God sets that standard. Uh, you remember what Peter said? He said, be holy. Quote in the Old Testament concerning God. Be holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. In other words, we look at who God is and what God is, and that tells us what right is. That tells us what holy is. And the righteousness of God demands a conformity to that standard. Demands a conformity to that rightness. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, Old Testament book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 12. Habakkuk says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? He says, Lord, thou hast ordained them, talking about the ungodly, for judgment. And almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Listen to what he says. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Now you might say, well, preacher, if God's so holy that when He sees sin, when He sees unrighteousness, He just has to annihilate it. He just has to destroy it. He just has to lay it low. Then how could He ever deal with us? That's what Calvary's for. You see, on Calvary, the Bible tells us that the sun went dark. God turned His back on His only begotten Son in judgment, in righteousness. God poured out His wrath upon Jesus Christ. And that eternal question that Christ asked upon the cross, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? The answer is very simply, He forsook Christ so He would not have to forsake you and I. There had to be a punishment. There had to be a payment for that sin because God is a righteous God. He is holy. And He cannot behold, and He cannot excuse, and He cannot condone sin. So when we see the judgment of God, our first thing should what a sinner they are. Our first thing ought to be, man, we got a righteous God. I'm reminded that God is a holy God, and He holds His people to a standard, and He holds them to account, and I better look at my life and consider the way that I'm living. It's a witness to the righteousness of God. It's a witness to the recompense of God. Not only that God has a standard but that He is willing to intervene and and, and interfere and interject into human uh, life in order to see that standard respected, in order to see that standard upheld. Let me go ahead and tell you this. At the end of the day, I believe God respects our free will. God could have, have zapped the free will out of mankind. Some believe that He did. I don't believe that. I know too many Baptists to believe we don't have the ability to make bad decisions. Amen? I, I, I don't believe God has eradicated our free will. He gives us free will. But make no mistake, though we do have free will, God also has an, a, a faithful will. And God will uphold the standard of righteousness. God will intervene in humanity. And God will intervene in our lives to pour out His judgment if we refuse to walk in obedience to His Word. Listen to what the book of Psalms says. Verse number 4 of chapter 11 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked in him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. That's the same Psalms that wrote the 23rd Psalms. Am I right? <laughs> hey, that, that, that's the same, the Lord is my shepherd. You can't have one without the other. Hey, the shepherd, he, he's, got, he's got the staff and he's got the crook both. Uh, you can't have one without the other. David said, hey, the Lord, he pours out judgment upon those that are unrighteous. Oh, preacher, that's Old Testament. Well, let's look at a little New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. 
It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. He goes on to close that chapter by describing these people and saying, who knowing the judgment of God. I'm talking about New Testament. I'm talking about Romans. I'm talking about church age. I'm talking about Pauline epistle. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Hey, listen, I, the, the, and I'm talking New Testament. The judgment of God. God is a, is a judging God. You say, well, you know, that's one example. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. Paul, you don't have to believe it was Paul, but I believe it was Paul. It was the Holy Ghost, no matter who it was. Said, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. You say, yeah, preacher, that's Old Testament. That's right. That's right, that's that Old Testament. He says, of how much sorer punishment. Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. This guy closes that little passage. He says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When we see the judgment of God, we ought to understand two things, that God's a righteous God, and that God is a recompensing God. But we're going to have to give an account for the way that we live. Paul said this, that some, men's, uh, some men are judged here and some men's judgment goes on before them. You say, preacher, I know one day I'm going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, but do you think God would judge me in this life? Oh, I, I guarantee it. I believe it a million percent. That's what Paul says. He says, some men's judgment goes on now. It takes place now. Some men's goes on before them. But you mark her down. God will judge. And I, and I Listen, I know about Calvary. I've been there. I understand our sins are under the blood. I also understand that, listen, the lost person that rejects the blood of that covenant and refuses the Son of God, chooses to partake in Himself that judgment without the benefit, blessing, and mercy of Calvary. If you reject the cross, you reject your only hope. I also know this, that even as us, as the people of God, we're not judged as sinners, but we are judged as sons. Hey, listen, every son whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. God chastens us. God, I, I, you say, what's the difference between judgment and, and chastening? Judgment is given uh, for the upholding of God's righteous standard. Chastening is given for the purging and perfecting of His children. But very often the two can look the same. They can look the same. I, I believe one day we're going to stand in judgment before the Lord and have to give an account as a servant of God. How have we lived our life? What have we done with Jesus Christ? How have we served Him? I'm saying this, that, that the judgment of God's a real thing and it reveals to us the righteousness of God, the recompense of God. So we see that God's judgment is a witness. Let me say number two, that God's judgment is a warning. God's judgment is a warning. Christ, really, what He is saying in these verses, really, if we were to summarize it, He is encapsulating what our response should be to the judgment of God. You see God's judgment in life. What does it make you do? There are some people, it makes them prideful. It makes them haughty. It makes them vaunt themselves against that person. I've known some people that they just broke all the pieces at calamity in somebody's life and you would have never known it by talking to them, right? Right. (laughs) There's just everything they could do to suppress the glee and joy that someone else had had misery come into their life. I I believe that one of the reasons that Job's friends were such miserable comforters is because I think they took some degree, some amount of pleasure in what had befallen Job. 
And there are some people that are like that. They grow haughty. They grow prideful. Some people use it as a, as a reason to, to castigate the other person, to criticize. What does Christ say it should cause in us? He says, I tell you, nay. He said, you look at this and you have a choice. You can draw the assumption, verse number 2, that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. You can look at these men that the Tower of Siloam fell on and you can think that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem. But here he says is the right perspective. Here's the right response. He says, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The judgment of God in the lives of others or in our life is a warning. And it is given to produce two things. One, that we might recognize our sin. The judgment of God is not given so we can recognize their sin. The judgment of God is given so we can recognize our sin. Not so that we'll look at them and say what sinners they were, but so that we'll look at ourselves and say, hey, is there some area of my life that's living in rebellion and insurrection against the authority of God? The Bible is replete, rich with passages that describe this attitude and spirit we should have. Can I give you one example? Isaiah chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. You can if you'd like. You want to check up on me, but you don't have to. In Isaiah chapter 6, the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah is a bunch of woes. Woes. You say, what do you mean? Well, he's saying he's woeing everybody. He's woeing everybody. He's woeing the Israelites. He's woeing the people of Judah. He's woeing, he's woeing fat people and skinny people and ugly people and, and good-looking people and rich people and poor people. He, he's woeing everybody. Woe unto this person. Woe unto that person. Woe unto this person. Woe unto that person. The Bible says in chapter number 6 that he sees a vision. He gets caught up. He sees a vision in the heavens. He sees the righteousness of God. That's the purpose of God's judgment is to be a witness to His righteousness. He sees the righteousness of God. He sees the, the cherubs, the, 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 the angels flying around God's throne and crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He sees the, the righteous nature of God. And what does it cause Him to do? Does He go back down thundering prophetic utterances? Does He go down and straighten out all those people and give them a, a couple dozen basket mores of woes? Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, listen to what He says. He says, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, when he saw the judgment of God in people's lives, he didn't say, boy, how what sinners they are. He said, boy, I better look at me. Let me tell you something, last time something bad happened to somebody, and you believed it to be the judgment of God, what did it cause you to do? Did you go home and say, boy, I'm glad I ain't them? Did you go home and say, boy, what they do? Or did you go home and say, hey, Lord, search me and try me. See if there be any wicked or unclean way within me. To recognize our sin. Not only that, it's given so that we might repent of our sins. Not just so that we might say, well, boy, we're, we're all sinners. That's, that's just the way it goes. <laughs> that's some people's attitude towards sin. You know, you'll ask me, do you believe you're a sinner? Well, yeah, we're all sinners. Yeah, and we're all destined to hell if we don't turn to Christ. Amen? That's not something to brush off. The Bible convicts you of being a sinner, and it does, by the way. John chapter number 3, Christ said this, Hey, listen, God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through Him might be saved. You said, boy, I love that. That's so sweet and so nice. He didn't come to condemn the world. Most people would love to stop their Bible right there and never go a word further. Boy, He's not here to condemn us. You know why? Because it says, He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. 
Christ did not come to condemn you. You know why? Because you're already condemned. That's what the law did. That's what the Old Testament did. That's what the righteousness of God did. Uh, he doesn't have to condemn you. You're condemned already. He didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Uh, he that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. You say, that's not fair. Well, this is, this is the basis of it. That light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Some people say, well, preacher, what if we didn't know any better? You can't say that. Christ has been. The Word of God is here. The witness of God is here. The truth of God is here. You can't say we didn't know any better. We do know better. So if we choose darkness, it's because we love darkness rather than light. Hey, listen, he, he, he was sent not to condemn the world. The world's condemned already. Once we see our sin, what should be the proper response? To repent of it. To turn from it. Repentance is a 180 degree turn. That's what it is. And people say, well, you know, repentance isn't, isn't cleaning out your life because that would be a work and this and that. I found this. Can I just be honest with you? I've never seen a, a new convert argue about such silly things. I've never had a new convert look at me and say, now, preacher, I want to repent in spirit, but I don't want to get rid of the wicked things in my life. Can I thread the needle that way? It takes a lot of years in a pew to start having dumb conversations like that. It does. It does. I'm serious. I, it, it, I don't know what does it. I would say this, that repentance is an attitude of the heart, but a true attitude of the heart always manifests itself by actions. Same way about faith. Faith is not a work. Faith is an attitude of the heart. But guess what James said? Faith without works is dead. It will produce a work in our lives. So what is repentance? Repentance is recognizing you're a sinner. And saying, woe is, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, 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 I'm on my way to hell because of my lost condition. And I do not want to go there. And so I'm willing to turn from my way of living and to turn to the Lord. Amen. If you're a child of God, repentance is saying, I've been going my own way in rebellion to my Lord that loved me and bought me. And I don't want to live that way. And I don't want to have the chasing of God in my life. So I'm going to quit going my way. And that, that includes the things I've been doing, but it also just includes the general spirit of disobedience I've been living in. I'm going to quit going that way, and I'm going to submit myself to the Lord, and I'm going to go His direction, repentance. It's given that we might repent. People say repentance is an Old Testament passage. I, I, I don't believe that. I don't believe it's an Old Testament concept. It is in the Old Testament. Uh, but Paul said in Acts chapter number 17, it's about as New Testament as it gets, verse 29, uh, and you say, well, repentance is a Jewish thing. Well, he said this to a bunch of Gentiles. He said in verse 29, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto silver or gold or stone graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at. Now, that doesn't mean God was okay with it. But that means God did not pour out immediate judgment upon people groups because of the ignorance they lived in. He instead sought to deal with them in mercy and extend loving kindness to them and provide light for them. But now He's saying light's been given. So there's nothing else we're waiting for. So if you reject the witness and light of God, there's nothing left. That's what Paul says in the book of Hebrews. He says, if we reject Christ, there's left no more sacrifice for sin. There's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere to hide. You either accept Christ or you reject Christ. If you die having rejected Christ, there's no purgatory to pray you out of. There's no interdimensional place to be in to rescue you out of. You either choose Christ or you reject Christ. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. There's no choice except those two. He says, listen, the times this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men, in that He hath raised Him from the dead. Paul says, there's coming a day we're going to give an account. 
And because of that, when you see that God is a righteous God, a recompensing God, when you see that you're a sinner, uh, you better repent of that sin because sooner or later you're going to have to stand and give an account for what you've done with Christ and for what you've done with your life. So God's judgment is a is a witness. God's judgment uh, is a warning. But then finally, and I'm done this morning, let me say that God's judgment is a wooing. A wooing. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, uh, so, some of y'all, whenever you was trying to uh, woo your wife, you, you, you took care of yourself better and you combed your hair better and you put a little smell in your hair and you did that because you were trying to get her attention. And now we're all married and fat and bald and there ain't nothing they can do about it. Amen? Sorry, honey. She would have never said till death do us part if she knew you were going to look like death warmed over within the next five years. <laughs> she might have thought that a little more carefully. But uh, wooing is to try to draw somebody to yourself. And let me say that in a sense, God will ultimately one day pour out judgment upon the ungodly with no end other than destruction. But look at the parable Christ tells in these next few verses. He says... A, man, a certain man, verse 6, had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Now, if you're a student of the book of Isaiah, you know in Isaiah chapter 5, this vineyard, he specifically is talking about Israel as a nation. But there's an application really in all of our lives because he's, at the heart of what he's getting to is God's working with that vineyard. He says he had a vineyard and he came and sought fruit thereon and, and found none. So this vineyard's not doing what it's been called to do, what it's been created to do, what it, what it has been planted to do. Then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. He said, Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? That's judgment. That's judgment. That's what judgment is. There's no, if, you're, if you're a plant, there's no greater judgment than to be cut down. Right? The judgment of God in the book of Daniel likened God's judgment to cutting Nebuchadnezzar as a great tree, cutting him down. He's picturing judgment here. And he answering, Who? That's the dresser of the vineyard. He answering, said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. Now, dig about it is pretty self-explanatory. When he says dung it, he means fertilize it. Take things that are unpleasant. Take things that are unappealing, but have properties that can develop and correct what's wrong with that vineyard and set it right. Let me dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. In other words, I would say this. We could look at the ultimate judgment of God as the, the cutting down of that tree. But before that tree's ever cut down, the dresser of the vineyard, he does some disruptive things, some unpleasant things. He gets around, he digs up, breaks up that soil, that, that stable foundation that that thing has been growing in. He gets in, he takes some of that smelly old manure and fertilizer and he packs it in around it and he waters it. What he's doing is disruptive. And I, I, Plants don't have feelings. Plants don't have feelings. Plants don't have feelings. But if they did, it'd probably say, Ow! It'd probably be a bad feeling. And in as much as it, as it pictures Israel as a nation or you as I as individuals, it's a reminder, I would say this, of the, of the coercive judgment of God in our lives. In other words, when we see the judgment of God, it ought to make us say, man, I better look at myself and see if I'm a sinner. We ought to, when we see the judgment of God, we ought to say, man, I better turn. I better repent. I better get right. Because I don't want to have the judgment of God in our life. But also, when we have the judgment, when we see the judgment of God in the lives of others, when we experience as children of God chastening in our lives, when you as a lost person experience unpleasant things in your life, you know what it ought to make you think? God is working 
on me. He's wooing me. He's drawing me. We see a few things here, and I'm just going to mention them and close. In this passage, we see the prerogative of God. It's His vineyard. He owns it. He has every right to expect fruit of it. He planted it there. It wouldn't have life. It wouldn't have light. It wouldn't have soil. It wouldn't have water. It wouldn't have all the things that it has unless the owner of the vineyard had planted it in that place. So it is reasonable for that owner of the vineyard to come by when it's an appropriate time, when time has been given, when the conditions have been correct. He's gone three different times. He didn't cut it down the first time. He's patient. He's long-suffering. It is reasonable for him to expect to get fruit off of it. Hey, let me tell you something. God put you here. God gives you the life that you live. He, he, he gives you the blessings that you have, the health that you have. I'm talking saved people and I'm talking lost people. You draw a breath today because the God of glory permits it. And so it is reasonable. He created you. We're created for His pleasure. It's reasonable that we would subject ourselves unto Him. We see the prerogative of God. We see the purpose of God in verse number 7. He says, these three years I come. And what's He seeking? He's seeking fruit. He's not seeking meat. He's not, he, he's not seeking water. He's not seeking something that it cannot produce. But here's what He desires for it. He wants it to produce fruit. We'd say it this way. He wants it to be fruitful. You know why God wants you to subject yourself to Him? Because He wants the best, not just out of your life, but for your life. Yeah. He's not doing it because He's got nothing better to do. He's not doing it because He enjoys exerting His influence. He's doing it because He wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to have a life that's worth living. We see the patience of God. Verse number 8. Man, I'm glad. Oh, I'm glad there was a dresser of the vineyard. I'm glad when the owner of the vineyard had every right to cut me down. That there was somebody that said, Lord, let it alone this year also. Owner of the vineyard said, well, what am I going to do with it? It ain't produced nothing. It ain't never going to produce. He said, no, no, no. I'll get down in the dirt with it. I'll get down in the dung. I'll take tools in hand and I'll till it and I'll work it and I'll prune it and I'll develop it and I'll do whatever it takes to try to make it worthwhile. Well, I'm glad. Hey, listen, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we see the patience of God. He says, okay, I'm not going to cut it down just yet. But if I'm not going to cut it down, we're going to have to try to till the soil. So that's the choice. I'm either going to cut it down because it's never going to produce anything, or I'm going to bring this unpleasantness, unpleasantness in its life. We see the process of God. He does all these disruptive things, all these unpleasant things. Uh, listen, hey, it makes me think about the psalm. Of psalms 119, he said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. He went on to say a few verses later, It's good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. God's not doing that because He's mad at you. He's doing that because He loves you. He's doing it because He's not done with you. He's doing it because He has a plan for you. Uh, there's a process to it. And very often, hey, listen, that's what it takes. If you're going to get that thing to produce fruit, it, it takes the digging, it takes the dunk, it takes those things in its life to drive out impurities and to bring in that which is rich. You, you know what our response ought to be? I'm going to back up and preach this. I'm going to back up. I'm going to back up and pun. I'm going to back up and preach. You ready? The patience of God. You know what Peter said? We ought to count the long suffering of our Lord's salvation. He said, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Uh, what promise of what? Of coming judgment. 
He's not slack. The reason He ain't snuffed you out is not because He don't keep His promises. It's not because He's not righteous. It's not because He doesn't judge. It's because He loves you. Peter said, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness. But here's what He is. He's long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He said, Preacher, when I see the judgment of God in other people's lives, what should that make me do? Well, number one, it should make you look at your own life. He said, Preacher, but, but aren't they sinners? Yeah, you might be a worse one. And at the end of the day, guess what? Guess who, guess who all judgment belongs to? Not you. Not me. Now, I'm not giving anybody a pass. I'm not saying they didn't do something wrong. I'm saying that's God's jurisdiction, not mine. I'm not saying we cannot judge righteous judgment. I'm not saying we can't have biblical opinions. But I'm saying if we look at the judgment of God in somebody's life and all it makes us do is say, well, what bad sinners. I must be doing pretty good. We missed it. The purpose is not to cause us to look at them, but number one, to cause us to look at God. Number two, to cause us to look at us. To look at us. To recognize our sin. To repent of our sin. Preacher, I don't like this. I don't like what I'm going through. I don't like these things in my... I don't like the digging. I don't like the dung. Yeah, but here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to make you fruitful. He's trying to bring something good out of your life. Preacher, what should I do? Well, the first step is look at yourself. If you're here today and lost and undone, God don't hate you. God loves you. God wants to save you. God wants to change you. And when all everything I preach today, if you really got, if you understood what I'm saying, that shouldn't make you say, "Boy, what a hateful God He served." You know what it should make you say, "Boy, that's a righteous God, but He must love me an awful lot." If He would put His Son through Calvary, if He'd put His Son on the cross, if His Son would bear the judgment, so I don't have, He must love me an awful lot, and He does. If you're here saved today. And you'd say, preacher, I, I know that I'm saved. I know I'm a child of God. Man, my life's just been, it's been, ta- it's just been upside down, sideways. It's been spinning. It's like a carnival ride I can't get off of. I don't know what to do. Preacher, what should that make me do? Well, number one, it should make you examine your life. Make sure, it should make you examine your life. It should make you say, well, is there anything in my life God may be trying to get rid of? Guess what there might be? You say, well, preacher, I, I've looked at my life. I cannot find anything. Being honest before God, then take the road that Job took. And say, hey, listen, he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Though he slay me, (laughs) yet will I trust in him. Listen, I think there's a lot of us that think we're Job's when we're not. Just being honest. We all think we're Job's, right? I mean, that's that's the way it goes. Everybody, when they're little and watching Gunsmoke, they all think they're Matt Dillon. We're probably Festus. Some of y'all might be Doc. We all think we're Job. But you know, there's probably a great many of us that if we were to be honest, take real inventory of our life, we're not. We're not righteous every day. We're not living the way Job did. And it could be God's trying to get something out of our life, perfect our life, purge our life. But what it ought to make us do is look at ourselves. Look at God and say, Lord, I will subject my, I'll, I'll submit myself to you. Lord, whatever it is in my life, I'm yours. I'm your vineyard. You planted me here. And I ought to be bearing you fruit. I'll do whatever you need me to do to make my life count for you.